Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Adam Pawatic. Today, our guest is Jane Papino, the partner at Aird and Burles LLP, founder and member of the firm's Municipal and Land Use Planning Group. And the topic today is going to be OMB reform. Uh, and so Adam and I have been looking forward to this. It's something that has a profound impact on development in Ontario. And so we're going to learn a lot more about it today. Welcome, Jane. Thank you very much for your invitation. Before we get into the nitty gritty, Jane, why don't you tell us about how you got involved in law, how you got involved in real estate, and how you got involved in municipal and land use planning? Big questions. How yeah. I got in law is kind of lost in the midst of time. I think I always wanted to um, be a lawyer, and I frankly don't know why everybody in my family generally went to nursing or medical school. Anyway, I ended up um, at Osgood in 1967, a long time ago, and uh, after finishing there, took a year graduate work in the States and did my master's of law, came back and started article thinking I wanted to be a negligence litigator, uh, article firm that did that and uh, was promptly put into what was called the municipal and planning department. And no one had really ever heard of these. Uh, It was brand new. This is like 47, 48 years ago. And um, I loved it. I just loved everything about it. I loved the fact that it was litigation. I loved the fact that back then there was very little paper not a lot of structure. Trial by ambush was not only expected, but welcomed. And uh, it was all in a highly political environment. So it was heaven for me. I got hired back at that firm and started off, as I say, 45 years later after my call to the bar. And that's all I've done for that period of time. So do you enjoy the thick of the battle in in the courtroom? Is it like a movie just uh, about real estate? (laughs) (laughs) Someone rarely bursts into tears and admits doing something, but it has happened. Yeah, I really like the courtroom stuff. I really like the strategy. I very much enjoy the process now and the cut and thrust at a at a local level, um, community councils and the like. And it's also about the people and the relationships, knowing the planners in the area, knowing who's the best in their particular field as a consulting expert, and just frankly working with the community and the counselor to try to get to a consensus on things. It's a really satisfying area of law. It's interesting to hear you say that real estate was not your original target because I know amongst brokers, lenders, it's very common that they didn't plan to, you know, on the day they graduated university to jump into real estate. They, you know, most people ended up here in a circuitous route. And it's mm-hmm. interesting to hear that for, for lawyers as well, it's not necessarily the straight shot that, uh, you know, you end up in, in the real estate. When I was in law school, they didn't even have a planning law course, or if they did, I didn't take it. It's a seductive area. And If you like numbers, it's great to be on the finance side. If you like process and engineering and putting things together, it's great to be a developer per se. And from my perspective, it's marshalling a group of people to work through a highly politicized environment with the odd firefight, which I always enjoy, to get to a solution. So it's it's a really seductive area, and I understand why people are fall into it and then stay. Yeah, that is the end result for a lot of people in real estate is they do end up, uh, you know, spending mm-hmm. their entire careers mm-hmm. in it. I always explain it as, you know, there's two things that basically every human can relate to, right? It's the weather and real estate, right? Everybody interacts with the weather, of course. Everybody interacts with real estate. When you talk about apartment buildings, people can kind of conceptualize what that means. Talk about office space. Everybody typically sits in an office and understands what that means. So that it's a commonality amongst basically everybody you know, whether you're in depth in it or just kind of use it. Well, that's right. And and the thing now is I think everyone's understanding that it that, that fits into a much larger picture. We're talking about transit. We're talking about sustainability. We're talking about about environmental viability. And all of that leads to and affects things like financing. So uh, contextualizing that as well is something that's really starting to be discussed at a much higher level. But you're right. At the core of it, you got to live somewhere and you've got, you know, you move around the city or move around your life. So in, in your world, in the world of you know, municipal land use planning group lawyers, how big of an impact is the restructuring of that process, the recent uh, changes to the OMB? Well, my department now at Aird and Burles is some 18 lawyers and four planners and some from time to time planning students. And of course, we always have articling students. So we're big and we do a, the broad spectrum of everything involved 
from landlord and tenant law and assessment work all the way through to the planning things. And I can say that the recent changes on a whole variety of matters has affected everything that everybody in my department does. What I do, and about 10 of us specialize in this, although everybody has a portal into it, has been dramatically affected by the recent Bill 139 changes, no question. We're used to change. Over the course of my career, there have been like eight or ten various amendments, significant amendments to the Planning Act. But this one's been a real change of attitude, of policy, and of intention. And of course, with that comes all sorts of regulatory changes, rule changes, and even the name has changed. We all find ourselves now still referring to the board when we're addressing tribunal members, and we all correct ourselves, and even the tribunal members have a laugh and say, well, I do it too. It's a wholesale change that's really shaken up everything. I don't know whether it's for the good across the board or not, but we're all trying to adopt and adjust. On a scale, you said there's been eight to 10 changes in your career. Where does this rank as far as sort of catastrophic or largest sort of impact on the business or on on what you guys do on a day-to-day basis? This is over 10. This is over 10. This changes everything. This changes the approach that has to be taken by landowners, by folks who finance, by the planners, by the lawyers, by the municipalities. It's very, very big. And can you, uh, just for our listeners, maybe who aren't that active on the development side of real estate, can you kind of summarize what they ruled out, you know, less than a year ago? Well, the Ontario Municipal Board, as it was for a hundred years, dealt with a whole range of pieces of legislation. They dealt with expropriation and railway things, but at the heart of it was the Planning Act. And back then, in the previous regime, there were obligations on the municipal board to have regard to what council did and to decide whether they were out in left field when they made a decision on an application for an official plan amendment or a plan of subdivision or a bylaw. Site plan was also part of the appeal uh, process permitted. But at the end of the day, the courts had since the 60s and 70s said that the municipal board had at the core of what it was equipped and and expected to do to make a determination about what was good planning in the public interest. Now, over the years, that got larded on. So there was a requirement that there had to be conformity with or consistency with provincial policy statements and the growth plan. And those only started for the first time about a dozen years ago. And then there was a subsequent uh, direction to have regard to what it is council did. But at the end of the day, if after a hearing and hearing all of the evidence, the board decided that what the municipality did was not in the public interest, was not appropriate, considering everything, including the provincial directives, they could overturn what council did. And that made the municipalities crazy. A lot of ratepayers were talking about it being undemocratic. And as a result of all of that debate and real political lobbying over the last 10 years, we're now in a circumstance where everything has changed. The entire regime has changed. And now the municipal board, instead of having um, the opportunity to discharge or make a decision in the public interest based on good planning, the LPAT, the Local Planning Appeal Tribunal, now can overturn council only if they find that council's decision has not met the provincial standards. So it truly is intended to be an appeal body with very, very limited rights to substitute its decision for that of a council. Why did the OMB come into existence? Like who owns the official plans? Is that, an, is that a provincial control? That's a municipal control. So why was it brought in that the, maybe the, the provincial government or the provincial level has the authority to overrule the municipal level other than, I guess you said it, for the purposes of making a decision in the best interest of the neighborhood. Right. Was that the initial, you said 100 years. What no. was the reason for the creation of the OMB in the first place, this appeal process? Well, ironically, my grandfather was on one of the first embodiments of the Ontario Municipal Board because back in the Depression, he was a banker, back in the Depression, there were all kinds of municipalities who'd gone bankrupt. So they had assets that were being left unmanaged. They... Roads weren't being repaired. Cemeteries weren't being uh, having their grass cut, all of that kind of stuff. And so one of the major roles originally was to manage municipalities. But don't forget also that uh, pre-World War II, it was rare for municipalities to even have something like a building code or zoning bylaw. 
City of Toronto, Ottawa, London, some of the urban centers, absolutely. But the township of Upper Bicycle Pump was an unorganized township and didn't have anything. So over the years, incrementally, the municipal board was seen as the repository for things having to do with municipalities. And that included, certainly after the world, uh, the Second World War, planning. And over the years, again, municipalities were given directions through the Provincial Planning Act that things such as official plans, which are high-level policy documents, were all to be done. And back in the day, every official plan had to be approved by the minister. And every bylaw had to be approved by the Ontario Municipal Board when I first started out. It was extraordinary. Whether people objected to it or not, it got sent down to Toronto for approval. So over those years, regional government came in. So the approval authority was delegated down from the province to regional governments. Large municipalities like Toronto, for example, were given the opportunity to basically approve their own. They were considered to be a grown-up municipality. So things have devolved over the years, but about a dozen years ago, 15 years ago, it became clear that the province needed to coordinate planning. So we saw things like not just the Niagara Escarpment Plan, but the Oak Ridges Moraine Plan. And then that led to provincial policy statements, which are a very high level, but pretty powerful directives that where the province said to a municipality, when you consider setting out your policy document, here are the things we want you to think about and to do. And it talked about heritage. It talked about preservation of environment. It talked about affordable housing and complete communities and good transit and a whole variety of things where the province and the provincial interest for having a strong economic base for the province, not having municipalities spend themselves into oblivion again, having a good quality of life, protecting the water, protecting uh, the air, all of those sorts of things are embedded in these and we're supposed to trickle down. So over the years, the municipal board just kept adjusting and whenever there was any sort of an issue or a ratepayer didn't like a, a bylaw that a municipality passed, they were entitled to appeal it and they would take it to the municipal board and the municipal board would consider all of these various increasing layers of direction, policy, and restriction. Provincial policies. Exactly. And they all were intended to be the goal, be the vision, but also, frankly, to be some restrictions and direction on what municipalities were supposed to reflect. And so then therein, I guess, is the conflict, right, where you've got these municipalities making decisions, there's appeal, and the province says, well, I have this overriding policy that I'm supposed to use as a guideline, and that, therefore, I'm going to side with what would be, would you call it a PLE or whoever is making the appellant? The, the yeah. appellant. Uh-huh. Thank you. Uh-huh. Even I knew that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Liar. So is that, that's ultimately the crux of the, this that, whole thing? That was part of it, but don't forget at the local level, it's all political. Everybody's on a four year cycle to get reelected. Oh, sure. And so that's where if you had, I mean, I can't tell you, let me put it differently. Um, even though I'm at the end of my career, I still want to have a couple more years in this business. <laughs> no one's um, listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I've had people come to me, counselors, and say, sorry, I had to vote that way, but I know if you go to the municipal board, they'll do the right thing. You need to understand this was a hot issue and this was a big ratepayer group. There would be really stupid decisions come out of municipalities and everyone knew that the municipal board could make it right. Because if, in fact, the official plan allowed, I'm going to make it up, up to 12 stories, but the local folks said anything over four was unacceptable, and they voted for four stories, everybody knew that that was a political decision that could not stand. I think Aaron's actually voiced uh, that as well on this podcast. The councillors could fall back on that before to their voting base, say, well, hey, I tried to vote in your favor, knowing that, of course, the project would proceed as, as planned. But now they have real accountability under the new system, I imagine. If they accept it. I mean, if they continue to play political games, I frankly am not clear on what's going to happen now. I do think that one of the positive things out of this bill is that it's going to challenge municipalities to plan in the public interest writ large, as opposed to plan for a particular neighborhood demand. And there are a bunch of checks and balances in there that... um, Once we get a mature approach to this, I think 
could work. But I've always maintained that because we still work in many municipalities on a ward basis as opposed to being elected at large, where people are looking at what's going to work best for an entire municipality, just because of our history, it's going to take what I term two political generations or four or four-year cycles. Mm -hmm. One person runs for, say, eight years, two cycles, and then another one to really arrive there. Hopefully it'll come sooner, but that's the risk right now in this transition period because what Bill 139 has done is attempt to deliver virtually complete power and responsibility to the local council. And we're going to just have to wait and see how they discharge it. Yeah, I imagine they must have mixed feelings on that. I mean, the full download of power to the councillors. Well, I think there was great excitement at the political level. I sat with uh, a councillor from the City of Toronto on a panel just after the act came into full force and effect. And she was bordering on giddy with the prospect of, quote, being able to direct their own future, end quote. And the Ontario Bar Association, the municipal law subsection, was making submissions or trying to make submissions on Bill 139 when it was in draft. And the Bar Association subsection was split because half of those lawyers work for municipalities. The other half, like me, work for developers and private owners. And so they ended up not being able to agree on a submission about whether there should be changes to the bill. I think what many of the municipalities are doing is celebrating the fact that they now believe that they have much more power to direct their own future, which they do. But by the same token, there is significant additional burdens And I'm not sure that they had understood what exactly that was going to mean. There are administrative burdens. There are political expectations, frankly. We're in such early days, we haven't seen them play out on the tribunal court. But it'll be interesting to see how it all does play out. I suspect most of our listeners are using Toronto and, you know, our understanding of the city council in this city while you're describing, you know, what's transpiring. Are there other municipalities that may have benefited better because they've got better structure or are all municipalities across the province uh, that ward structure and, and, and really going to struggle with this? Or are there smaller municipalities that may now benefit from having the, the greater control at that ground level? Or is it really across the province this is this is going to cause more challenges and and we haven't used Mm -hmm. the words yet but there's nimbyism right we know that that really is the challenge here is you've got these councillors that now have to respond to directly to their constituents where before as you indicated you know councillors could say yeah no i tried but i'll let the omb make the right decision because i'm just trying to keep my job i want to get elected in 12 months or wherever it is well i i can't answer that because some municipalities who welcome it it's all a matter of attitude to say that's great you know we will front-end load the applications. We're going to deal with all the additional paperwork. We think this is just great because there the municipality or the individual members of council might be saying, I am committed to doing what is best for this municipality overall. There might still be some folks who say, I only care about getting elected in four years, so I want to do what my ratepayers want to do. I think if there's one thing that I'm hoping and expecting to see is that professional staff will get more power and will be listened to a bit more than in certain circumstances in certain municipalities they are at the moment. Because at the end of the day, what comes in front of council for its decision is going to be extraordinarily paper-heavy. The front-end loading is huge. And and I can speak about what that really means for our industry in a moment. But there will be a great amount of paper, a great amount of analysis. The professional planners are going to have to prepare a report that comes up with an actual recommendation and tests it against the provincial policy statement, the growth plan, the official plan, and all of those policies. And woe betide the individual counselor who doesn't take that into account and be guided at least in large measure by that because if they try to cut things down, my sense is... We don't know. We haven't seen any decisions yet. My sense is that the argument can be made to the tribunal, this isn't fulfilling what it is the professional staff said was the intention of the province and municipal policy documents. Do I know? I don't know. Am I hoping? Absolutely. I guess for a lot of this, um, a lot of it is unknown. There's a a lot of question marks surrounding the exact implementation and how this is going to play out in reality. You know, if nothing else, development cycles... Uh, they don't operate in months. They operate 
in years. You know, I mean, there even be an argument to be made that, you know, development cycles don't operate in four-year increments, whereas obviously election cycles do. And so if you're mid-process and then they switch a counselor on you, if they're not as pro-development as the previous one, they could really impact the outcome of your development. Absolutely right. And another good reason, I think, for working closely with staff. I mean, one of the things this bill forces us all to think about is before we even go in for the first pre-consultation meeting with any municipality, you're going to have to have a full team on board or very close to it because every single document that gets filed from the pre-consultation meeting on becomes part of the record. That didn't happen previously. You could put it in front of the tribunal or the board as it then was, but now it's absolutely formally part of the record. There will be thousands of pages that get shipped by the municipality to the tribunal. So everything is front-end loaded, and there will have to be a lot of attention paid as you work through the process to fixing, revising, tweaking, and documenting those fixes, those tweaks. Get engineering comments about your access point to a shopping center or some mixed-use development. You're going to have to document how that is reflected in what it is the municipality processes. Hmm. So to your point about getting caught in the, in the election cycle— it's always a scramble to make that last council meeting before an election. We've just suffered through that. But yes, I think if you're looking for continuity, it's going to come through the work that you're doing with the staff and that your consulting team is doing with the staff. I know that um, developers viewed the OMB as a friend. Uh, I probably know the answer to this, but what are your clients saying about this most recent change? Well, let me back up and say I think developers may have viewed the OMB not necessarily as a friend because when you look at the data, they were as likely, depending, of course, on the evidence, to say this is bad planning as it is good planning. It was a relief valve. It was a relief valve from politics, to be absolutely frank, I think. On the tribunal, nobody knows. And the irony is that some of the regulations that have come in actually cut the landowner out of the process and leave it between the appellant, which could be, you know, an objecting neighbor, for example, and the municipality. So there's some wrinkles like that that are having to be worked out. I think the one thing that developers are quickly realizing is that the timelines are going to be probably double because the work that has to be done on front end to support an application, the work that has to be done through the processing of an application will lead to, I think, much more time spent at a municipality. It's hard to imagine that it would ever take any longer <laughs> in the city of Toronto, but it could. And then to get the tribunal, they do work on short timelines. There are actually deadlines in the regulations by which time something has to be processed and a decision issued, but we have no idea how that's going to be enforced. The volumes that the tribunal is dealing with now of both particularly of old Appeals done under the old act are huge. We're looking now already at hearing days being set 18 months out for an old act appeal. So I have no idea how the tribunal is going to manage it. And the, the interesting thing is there is actually the potential for a double hearing under the new bill. So it builds in its own inefficiency. Is that good for billable hours? <laughs> <laughs> well... Yeah, probably. And I, I hate <laughs> to say it. Honest, yeah. As somebody as somebody who loves to advocate, I mean, there's nothing I like more than a juicy cross-examination. That's effectively gone now. Everything, virtually everything is going to be done in writing, and it takes 10 times longer to write stuff than it does to say it. So all of that is going to add to the cost and to the length of time, and people are going to have to, as I, I can't emphasize enough, front-end load everything and be prepared to spend a lot of time getting this great big dossier organized. You know, Jane, as you're going through all these things and listing off all the sort of these challenges that are going to be coming to, to development and, and developers, it might can feel myself like my blood boiling because it, it's <laughs> it's so frustrating. We're in the middle of this sort of affordability crisis in this city where, you know, they're, they're clearly we're having you know, a mass or, or what, what appears to be coming is lots of people moving to the city that can no longer afford to live here that are now thinking about where else can I go because they cannot afford to rent, they can't afford to buy. Right. 
you know, rents have gone up 80% or something like that in the last five or six years. Income is not following. Like it, it was no secret that we were having a real sort of critical moment in our, in our city's history to try to challenge and, and combat this affordability issue. And yet here's the provincial government making a decision or, or, or here's this new law that's really causing the complete opposite. This is pressure against affordability or, or I guess to make things less affordable now because it's going to be less density approved by municipalities. It's going to take longer for construction to occur for new units to come online. And new- yeah, the whole period on land is what kills return for, for developers. So that just gets downloaded ultimately to the end consumer, which is the renter. And I and I get, I get the concept of the big bad developer just trying to make more profit and this is against them trying to make more money. But at the end of the day, it's just going to make things less affordable for the end user. It's going to be harder for people to make ends meet. Like it, it just seems so mm-hmm. counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. How did they get here? Like when this, this, I know you said it was a 10 year process. So clearly, you know, maybe the, the ball was you know, the snowball effect and it just was unstoppable at some point. But you would have thought somebody would put their hand up and say, wait a minute, this is terrible timing given the affordability crisis we're having in this city and not just the city. I mean, it's happening now in other, in other parts of the province. Sure. So any concept, like I, I, yeah, yeah. I asked you this question before and you said silos. So maybe yeah. expand on that. Well, I have two um, answers to that. The first is how did it happen? Silos. I don't think that there was any complete, thorough consideration of everything, including uh, delivery of affordable housing, number one. Number two, I think that there was actually self-delusion going on at the province. Let me just read you what the Minister of Municipal Affairs stated when he introduced the bill. He said, the reforms we're proposing would result in fundamental change. If our reforms pass, there would be fewer and shorter hearings and a more efficient decision-making process. There would be more deference to local land use planning decisions, and there would be a more level playing field for residents wanting to participate. Let me parse that. If the reforms pass, there'd be fewer and shorter hearings. Yes, because they're restricting appeals on certain things. They're putting in the time limits. You have to do it all in writing. So I agree with you, with them there. And a more efficient decision-making process, my foot. There would be deference to local land use planning decisions. Yes, there would be, except, and I'll give you some exceptions, around transit stations and in a couple of other circumstances. And there's where there is some hope for additional density or some ability to drive affordability, maybe. And it goes on to say, in more level playing field for residents wanting to participate, what the bill requires is a lot more community consultation. But then once someone has participated, and if they don't get their desires met in the municipal decision, then their ability to be involved in the process is truncated just the way a developer's ability is. It's all in writing. It's got to be uh, dealt with um, through the test of the, the appeals. Let me just say the one thing where there could be more efficient decision-making process that leads to affordable housing. There is something called an MTSA in the Act. That's a major transit station area. And it's defined as being, as you can judge, on an LRT, on a subway And there are a whole variety of rankings that are set out by Metrolinks in their big move document and through the growth plan and through local official plans. Places like Ottawa and London and Kitchener and Toronto, certainly. And in that circumstance, the bill says that within 500 meters or a 10-minute walking distance, it actually sets out minimum densities of jobs and persons per hectare. But what we're finding already is in the city of Toronto – They just kind of said, oh, well, we're going to meet that, but then continued on with a process that slapped on height limitations in an official plan. So there's still an awful lot of maneuvering that has to go on between the province and the municipalities to see whether the province could assert its direction, demand even, uh, for minimum densities around these MTSAs because the other thing they've done is once a municipality puts in place an official plan that deals with the MTSAs across their municipality, there can be no appeal of that. So I think what the province was trying to do was to say, here's our minimum. You can put in a maximum. As long as you uh, determine that, then nobody can challenge it. It's going to be interesting for ratepayers who are within, I mean, think of Leaside, for example, and uh, how close they are to the Eglinton LRT. I mean, in theory, they could see the within 500 meters, 
very substantial increases that they cannot appeal. It's such early days, I don't know what's going to happen. But um, back to your main point, it's a dilemma. I don't know how they're going to balance it. And we're all scratching our heads about how to deliver affordable housing under the whole variety of acts, the rent control Mm -hmm. material that came in as well, the inclusionary zonings, all of that. There is a need for a provincial vision without a doubt, but I guess the new system is more of a, of a fiefdom where the vision kind of starts and stops at the boundary of, uh, of the ward. Is that, uh... that's, that's well put, Adam. Yeah. I mean, municipal politicians can continue to treat their wards as fiefdoms or they can accept the inherent direction or concept or basis of Bill 139, which is act like a grown-up municipality, plan in a sensible way for things that include affordable housing, protection of the environment, leveraging provincial investment in transit and all those sorts of things. Do you think we're going to see land values change, fluctuate, depending on who the councillor is in that ward, where developers <laughs> are going to start saying, you know what, this councillor is much easier to deal with. They're more willing to you know, be pro-development and do the right thing. And so I'm going to be looking to buy land in their ward versus the next door ward that's across the street because I don't want to deal with that councillor who's the opposite, who's got no teeth and really just will bow down to any uh, sort of pressure from their constituents. That's an interesting question, and I don't know whether it would affect the land values, but it sure would affect um, the amount of spine you're going to have to bring to a particular location, I guess. Or maybe yeah. put another way, you know, maybe do you do you see your clients, you know, that say they're, they're they're thinking about development in multiple different locations because you know, a lot of our, a lot of developers have sort of land banks and they've got five or six sure. projects in the pipeline and they're starting to change their decision making about you know what I'm going to go and tackle this development because it's in a particular ward where I feel I have a better chance of getting the density, getting the approvals from that counselor versus another counselor who is you know maybe more more difficult to deal with, I, or, or maybe they're creating yeah. a, a ranking, like they're creating a, like a roster, <laughs> they, the, the top counselors they want to deal with, and then you would down the list of the councils you really don't want to deal with and yeah. you're just going to avoid development in those a wards. A fantasy league where they... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Either a roster or a dartboard. Or a dartboard, <laughs> yeah. sure, yeah. I haven't seen it. I can't imagine it would affect land value simply because, I mean, it's location, 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 right? If you've yeah. got a difficult counselor at the corner of two subway lines, and some might say we have that already, sure. the value's still there. I think probably what's going to happen is you just have to work harder and prepare for greater consultation, a greater persuasion, and greater concentration on meeting the professional staff demands. I think that's all we can do. I can't answer. It'll be dependent on how much uh, stomach someone has for the battle. What What has replaced Section 37 in Nothing. the new? No. Nothing. Hmm. If anything, I think it could lean to municipalities making it even more codified. In other words, we're going to take 20% of the lift in value and our appraisers are going to um, assess what that value is. We're seeing some of that already. This, uh, this might be a good time to ask our, our listener question. I put out on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and asked, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that, of course, you're coming on and we we're going to discuss. And we got a question from uh, Chris Spoke uh, via Twitter. Uh, he says, what does Minister Clark need to do to restore OM powers via LPAT? De novo hearings, what else? Uh, Aaron's my first question is, what are de novo hearings? Oh, okay. Well, de novo hearing is where the municipal board, as it used to be, would say, I've heard all of the evidence and here is my decision. In other words, they treat the application as one which has gone through a process and it's an interesting process and it's one from which they will learn what went on and which they will have regard to. But at the end of the day, they can make any decision that the council could have made. Now, under the LPAT, it is truly an appeal body. So what the decision that council made represents is something that can only be changed if certain tests, and they're very high tests, are met. The board is far less able to substitute its decision for that of council. So, What could uh, Minister Clark do? Let me just give a preamble to that and say that there are a couple of specific matters in the city of Toronto, for example, that people are are suggesting the province and the the minister should do. And that has to do with um, putting the brakes on provincial approval of a couple of uh, municipal initiatives in the downtown, something called TO Core, and in the Young Eglinton Secondary Plan area. 
Because one of the things that the new bill has introduced is quite draconian, and it's called Section 26 of the Planning Act. I'm sorry, I don't mean to bore people. Bottom line is, in this circumstance where a municipality has to get or request ministerial approval, goes up to the province for approval of a secondary plan, there can be no appeals, not by a ratepayer and not by a landowner. And once a secondary plan is approved under that, there can be no application to amend that secondary plan for at least two years unless council consents. It's big time shutting down of the right to appeal and to have the decision of council even tested. So I think one of the first things that the minister should be doing is slowing down on implementing some of those really draconian changes. I think the province has a lot on their plate right now. They're trying to deliver on the four or five major platform uh, promises that were made. So probably the best thing that will happen in the short term is to just, as I say, slow down on some of those things and maybe put together a meaningful panel of experts to consult because the bill itself came through a process that was deeply flawed. Yes, they can say that they had 1,100 written submissions and there was all sorts of consultation. It was drafted in a vacuum and there were a lot of submissions about the obvious unintended consequences that came out of the act that just fell on deaf ears. And we're starting to live those already. So ideally, he would simply repeal it. That would be the easy thing. What's the probability of that? Um, oh, I don't know. You'd have to speak to the minister <laughs> okay. and the premier about those. It's hard to tinker with. It's a hard bill to tinker with. But removing Section 26 for starters, removing the limitations on and restricting the first appeals to only written, I don't think makes it more efficient. I think it makes it far more costly and much more difficult for folks to get their cases thoroughly in front of the tribunal. I think that the concept of a mandatory case management probably makes some sense, but I don't think they're sufficiently resourced to be able to do it with respect to all of the appeals that are coming in. So there are a lot of things there that can be tinkered with and improved, but I think some of the fundamentals about trying to restrict the certain kinds of appeals is is ill-founded. And given that uh, this was all initiated pre Ford government. Has there been any indication from the new government on their views of this process or the changes in the in the system? None that I've seen in a formal sense at all. Did, there, he, did he mention this during his campaign? Like there was no, no I didn't hear anything about it no. during the whole election. No. That's right. It's pretty niche though, I think, in terms of stakeholders that actually Fair. care about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is it is niche, I agree with you, but by the same token, the development industry is depending on where auto is this in the economy of this province, the development industry is the largest, if not one of the largest contributors to the economy. And to your point, it houses people and it provides places for people to work and it moves people around on transit and roads. So it's really big. And I think it's it should be tackled and it should be tackled soon, but it should be tackled in a careful way unless there's going to be a wholesale repeal, I think. For context, and I'm ignorant to this because I'm, you know, we're, we're, pretty Toronto-centric or Ontario-centric. Mm -hmm. Are there other provinces or other jurisdictions, maybe North America, Europe, you know, Western societies that have got it figured out, that have a structure that really works? Or is this kind of something that all jurisdictions deal with in some form or fashion? I think all jurisdictions deal with it in some way. Well, let's take BC, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, Vancouver's been hopping for a long time. There is no other body in our nation, in Canada, that is similar to the OMB. So in Vancouver, for example, the municipality makes a decision, but their folks are tend to function a bit more at large, number one, and they have party politics out there. You mean there. beyond the boundaries of their… Their particular board, okay. yeah. They, they think about issues holistically. It's yeah, and, and just for context, they don't have a one solo council, right? They have individual councils for the different jurisdictions. Like Richmond has their council and, and North Vancouver has their own council and, and, you know, Surrey has its own council. And then they're all part of the GVRD, right. the Greater Vancouver right. District Region. Exactly. So they operate differently. They've got a different governance structure and they rely a great deal more on their professional staff. And it's far less politicized there than it is here. And that's just the way the history has been. But if there's an appeal, you have to go to the courts. So... 
in Ontario, I think one of the things that the government had done for years and years and years was try to keep those sorts of decisions away from the courts so they're not going to get clogged. Courts have an awful lot of other things to deal with as well. And they don't have necessarily the expertise where the OMB and now the tribunal, I should say, by the way, everybody said, oh, Bill 139, that's great. We've, you know, politicians were saying we've been able to actually get rid of the OMB. It's all the same people. They simply changed the name. All the same members. And, and added more shackles to them. And added more shackles and gave them different marching orders and new rules and all that kind of stuff. But every single person is... Kept their job, yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. And when you speak to them, have they provided feedback on uh, the new system? Or is that... Uh, Off the on? record, <laughs> maybe, yeah. yeah. No, na- no names. No names. <laughs> Let me put it this yes. way. They're all still there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think in fairness, there was some consultation. And I do know that the leadership at the tribunal has worked really hard to make the transition as accessible as possible, to try to make it as sensible as possible. And they're trying to do the best job they can. They are really under-resourced. There are not enough members Membership used to be, back in the day when I started, municipal board members were treated like judges. They were appointed like judges. They were appointed absent any misbehavior till they retired. And they developed a great amount of respect for their capabilities and a great amount of expertise. Now, to become a member of the tribunal or previously the municipal board, you apply online. You're given three-year contracts and you can't serve in total for anything more than 10 years. So all that institutional history just gets lost. And that's new with the new LPAT. Part of it's new. Some of it did exist under okay. the OMB. Okay. About it's, This started about 10 to 15 years okay. ago, and but there are term restrictions and all that kind of stuff. So it's difficult. And they're down. They don't have the complement of members that they are legislatively permitted to have. They're wildly under-resourced. And as you said, there's going to be more paperwork and Ugh. more effort needed for every review. Every review. And it's very highly specialized knowledge. You can't just put an ad on Kijiji and uh, hire the first 10 people to show up. It's uh, going to be difficult. That's exactly right. And in fact, in order to try to deal with getting enough bodies, the local planning appeal tribunal is part of something called ELTO, the Environmental and Lands Tribunals of Ontario. And it includes the assessment review board that deals with tax assessment and re. Uh, the Conservation Review Board that deals with heritage matters. For example, there's a cluster, and sometimes there's an opportunity or an attempt, rather, to cross a point, certain members, so that they'll move from one tribunal to the other. And we're finding that although those folks are capable and committed and the like, some of them are part-time members, so they're not used to taking on the workload that former OMB, now LPAT uh, members do. And again, to your point, Adam, it's really specialized. So I think there's a learning curve there that folks are, are trying to climb. We've kind of focused a lot on uh, maybe the more negative aspects of this. <laughs> is the, if you were to highlight a couple of the positive aspects of this change, is there is there anything that uh, you could point at and say, I like that? In the early days. And, you that know, was a we, deep we, sigh. Well, exactly. <laughs> we, we're all used to what we're used to, you know? I think if there's anything positive at all, it is that done properly, this will really focus on provincial direction and how it gets implemented locally. And if you can take out some of the potential for nimbyism and politics and all those sorts of things and think of this as a purely planning exercise, then it's going to keep everyone on their toes. And there is a much more significant demand on landowners and developers to do community consultation as well as working with staff. Never a bad thing because you can limit surprises, you can come up with some creative solutions, and I think educate people as to why it is some of the requests make sense and are a good thing. So that's, I think, positive and done right. There's always the chance that things won't get appealed. Mm-hmm. Done right. You know, but the so front the front loading basically addressing that. It could. Yeah. It could. And done properly. So if you got into a smaller municipality where things were already simpler and things weren't quite as starkly divided into, you know, we they, I see this as having the potential for moving things along and, and allowing truly good local solutions to result. Another thing I think that's going to be really good, but we haven't seen how it's going to be operationalized yet, is protecting those MTSAs, the 500 meters, and having, I hope, the province wade in more deeply 
and to say, no, no, when we gave you minimum densities here, we meant it. And we're going to perhaps pull out a couple of areas as pilot projects to show how it should be done or give you some direction as to how it is we want it to be done. But the province has put a gazump of money into infrastructure. I mean, the Eglinton Crosstown Mm -hmm. has represented 50% of the infrastructure budget of this province over the last three to four years. So unless they get the opportunity and the commitment to work with the municipality to leverage that investment, I think that's a great opportunity. So we'll see what happens in circumstances like that. And, and those MTSAs exist around the province, just in a different form. What does MTSA stand for? Major Transit Station Area. Right. So it's a subway and, and LRT. That, that was the 500 uh, meter or 10 minute walk exactly. distance and a, and a minimum density yeah. that's required b- exactly. on all municipalities. But Mississauga, yeah. Brampton, Ottawa, London, they all have them. They just have them in different forms. Okay. Interesting. Mm. Um, another repercussion potentially is... Um, the stronger developers have more ability to work with the city. They've got more resources. They can spend more time and energy doing city planning and, and branding. I'm not sure these are connected, but all of a sudden you're seeing uh, commercials just on TV making themselves you know, look to see I'm environmentally conscious, I'm socially conscious. And I wonder if part of that is just making sure that in the, in the social conscious People want to work with the certain developers. And so when they see that development in their backyard, like, oh, I, I've seen your commercials. I like you guys. You guys are for the good. You're, yeah. you're not a you know, profit-oriented development. Do you think that's going to happen? Or have you seen that? Or you, have you talked to your clients? You assume that that's part of their strategy? I've totally seen it. I think it makes sense. And I do think that the days of the old-time developer, it's my land and I'll do what the hell I want with it, are long gone. But you're right. I think that... If a developer and a development interest can understand that the new act requires them to be part of a process that is intended to involve all parties extensively, including the public, Mm -hmm. including the difficult neighbor over the back fence, and to give everyone a voice, at least at the early part, then being trustworthy, being efficient, being respectful, and putting the clear evidence to educate people and to assure them that their concerns are being addressed is going to go a good long way. And of course, that branding also is presumably listened to or read by the staff at the municipalities and by Mm -hmm. the politicians. So it's all part of, I think, the new world, the new world order. Are there any uh, peripheral stakeholders we're not really covering that you think uh, are going to see a major shift in their interaction in this process? Well, trying to think of who might be a peripheral actor, um, heritage advocates, for example, I think are no longer peripheral. I think we have to pay a lot of attention to them. Typically, you didn't necessarily think of folks like landscape architects and sustainability green roof experts, but they are at the heart of everything that's happening today, I think, across the province more and more. So I don't think there are any outliers that I can't think of right now. And frankly, I think folks who are financing and who are taking a look at structuring deals are going to be more involved in understanding the process as well because they're going to have to provide potentially bigger budgets at the beginning for a lot more consultant work than we may have done in the past. They're going to have to understand the change timelines when thinking about cash flow projections and going to have to be prepared potentially for a longer arc of financing before somebody can get something shovel-ready. And obviously, it's relevant uh, to Aaron and I. And in the current environment, land loans are a little more restricted than they were uh, a year ago. And part of that is just the how soon are you going to get into the ground? And now the answer to that is, you know, longer than we planned. So that should impact land loans as well. I think it could. There are some areas, for example, in the city of Toronto, Along the avenues of, think think of Danforth, Mm -hmm. think of Kingston Road, think of out in the West End, really well served by transit now, sitting there with nothing on them, all those, you know. Two-story retail with the Golden Mile, ripe, rich, and maybe you could go there at the speed of light, which would be, oh, 24 to 36 months, that speed of light these days. So there could be areas where existing timelines still could be met. But my concern is that uh, particularly if you're under the old act, 
it's going to be substantially longer now before you can get approvals dealt with. My recollection of history obviously is limited, I guess, partially to my timeline in this industry. But did not the Mike Harris Red Tape Commission attempt to address a lot of these issues that many years ago? Mm, I sat on Mike Harris's Red yeah, Tape Commission. And as always happens, there are unintended consequences. And I think one of the things that happened there was um, because of the goal of really lessening government control, instead of talking about starting to revamp necessary controls and putting a new system in place, there were things that were just chopped. This regulation was chopped. That regulation was chopped. And my other adage always is the pendulum never rests in the middle. And there were things that were taken out which probably shouldn't have been. They should have been rethought. They should have been reapplied. But because they were taken out, they led three or five or seven years later to conservation authorities putting more regulations in. Mm -hmm. Municipalities sticking things back into their official plan that hadn't been there before. So just think of, think of the bank meltdown in the States in 2008 and Sorbanes-Oxley. The new law came in and it mm -hmm. just drove the banks to distraction because it had so many layers of accretion and regulation. That's what happened after the Red Tape Commission. So if there's something I would urge and plead with the Ford government to do, it's to, yes, look at everything because God knows we could streamline a lot. But don't just start to chop things. Think about redesigning it. Think about, you know, prioritizing things and capturing stuff in a way that protects the environment and sustainability and efficiency and affordability without um, leading to the risk that other folks are going to say, oh, well, we need to plug that new hole in this new mm -hmm. gap. Uh, Jane, we'd like to end off the guest segment, of course, by asking our question of this year, which is if you were to invest in one asset class in one city, what would it be? But maybe for you, it'd be more appropriate to say, which ward would you buy in rather than which? <laughs> <laughs> well, That's too political. Okay, no, but hang on. And in the city of the Toronto, we're going to have 42, 47, or 25 wards, That's right? Good so uh, we'll, we'll know a, a little bit more about that on Friday, the 31st of August. If I were to invest in a class of asset, I think it'd be like the Golden Mile kind of thing, whether it's in the city of Toronto or somewhere else, underused retail where there is the opportunity for mixed use, for concentration, ideally within spitting distance of some reasonable form of transit. doesn't need to be rapid transit, but a high-speed bus line or the like. I think if you could include some affordable housing, maybe even rental, it would probably assist things enormously. And I would always put those in as Section 37 benefits or as, quote, free density, or at least in part. So I think that that's an asset class that's undervalued at the moment. An awful lot of people own an awful lot of that kind of stuff. And it's just sitting there waiting to be rediscovered as retail bricks and mortar starts to morph into being less needed. And you have the skill set, of course, to uh, turn it into a 10-story <laughs> building, right? 10. Uh, why 20, stop at 30, 10? 40. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're only going to get four approved, yeah. so why bother? <laughs> Uh, so, Jamie, I want to thank you very much for coming uh, on today. This is uh, obviously, you know, highly informative. And for and for anybody that didn't understand what we're talking about today, call a lawyer. It's probably the best advice. <laughs> call Jane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much, uh, Jane, for coming on. Thank you to our listeners for, for listening as always. We always say, you know, subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on LinkedIn. And going forward, we're going to be asking questions before the guest comes on about, uh, you know, if you want to have input to the kind of stuff we're talking about. Uh, follow us on Twitter, follow us on LinkedIn, and you'll have a chance to, to do that. So thank you, Jane. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.